0: Gafari's debut novel, To Keep the Sun Alive, has already earned glowing praise. Kirkus called it a complex portrait of a country on the brink of revolution. Mir Jacob writes, Ghaffari has built a world so lush, so precise that you will find yourself rewriting history if only to imagine it could still exist. Rebea Gafari was born in Iran and lives in New York City. She is a film, direct, a film editor and writer whose collaborative fiction with artist Sharon Nishat was featured in Reflections on Islamic Art, and her documentary, The Troop, featured Tony Kushner. To Keep the Sun Alive is her first novel. We're thrilled to have her with us this evening. Please join me in giving her a warm welcome. Hello. Oh. Mom, that's your phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for being here tonight. Um, This book has been uh, 10 years in the making, maybe longer, if I count all the years that it was a screenplay first. (laughs) Um, and it was inspired by my trip back to Iran in 2002, um, after a 23-year absence. And it, I kind of felt compelled to tell this story about a family on an orchard in Neishapur. Um, I mean, the book itself is not autobiographical, but its reason for being, I think, is my own absence from this country. And in my return, everything that I remembered as a child was gone. So I'm going to read you, um, hold on. I'm going to read you two excerpts from the novel The first one is at the end of the luncheon where this family gathers on this orchard. And (laughs) you kind of start to feel something is coming. And so I feel like this little excerpt will give you just a feeling of this family and everything. The sun was growing dim the final chapter of Friday Lunch. The women came out of Bibi Khanum's room, breaking up the mullah's sermon. One by one, the guests expressed their gratitude to their hostess, said their farewell, and started up the path home. The mullah led the way, then kamar, grumbling under her breath about an upset stomach brought on by too much food. Her husband followed a half step behind and then Nasrin holding the midwife's arm. Majid walked at the end of this line admiring Nasrin's effortless gait while feigning interest in conversation with his father. Shazdapur had suspected that there was something between the two young people and now he was certain. He looked at the space between the young lovers, and could almost feel the love between them. And he thought, in that moment, that if they were to metamorphose into musical tempos, she would be allegra manontropo to his grave con brio. Shastapur hummed along, batting stones out of his way with his mahogany walking stick. The mullah beckoned him to the head of the line. Shastapur picked up his pace. Did you know that every 33 years, the lunar and solar calendars overlap, said the mullah. The mysteries of the cosmos. There will be a full solar eclipse as well, I have heard. The mullah looked sternly at his nephew. It's not a mystery. It's a war. Chahar Suri falls on the same day as Ashura. If I catch one person celebrating that pagan ritual when they should be mourning, they will have to answer for it. Shazdapur did not believe that the Zoroastrian fire-jumping ritual was an affront to the day that Imam Hussein was killed in the Battle of Karbala. Zoroastrian rituals from Chahar Suri to Noruz were so much a part of the culture that they were celebrated by all Iranians regardless of their religion. Shazdipur hated Ashura, though. He hated anything related to Shiite Islam. Every year during Ashura, he would hide in his salon and drink his cognac while the weeping processions of people beating themselves passed by outside his door. For him... The great tragedy of Iran had been the arrival of Islam. For him, its infiltration into the everyday life of the people was a descent into the Dark Ages. The public demonstrations of grief for, as he once put it, after one too many cognacs, an Arab who died in the middle of the desert 1300 years ago on his way to seize power was the lowest a nation could stoop, and to add insult to this injury was to be told to submit three times a day to this contrived narrative in Arabic, a foreign tongue which was, for him, the end of Persian civilization. He turned to the mullah and said, I am sure people will be respectful of the serious and unique nature of the overlapping of the calendars. Things are changing, and people will have to start answering for their indiscretions. Shazdapur knew full well what the mullah was alluding to. He spent every evening in his salon listening to the BBC The rumblings of unrest in the cities were growing stronger and stronger. It was just a matter of time before it ruptured the ground beneath his feet. No matter how quietly and elegantly he sat in his club chair trying to drown it out with adagios, andantes, and allegros. Golden hour descended upon the orchard and the sun bowed and long shadows queuing the moon the insect chorus raised their evensong to praise her ascent then sank into soft vespers under her gaze bismillah rahman, rahim bibi khanum whispered with her eyes closed standing on a small carpet with nothing but a prayer stone from karbala She knelt and bent to the stone and touched it with her forehead, where a small mark had formed from years of prostration. After a few lines of prayer, she raised her palms to the sky, then knelt again and put her head to the stone. The words she whispered were spoken by rote in Arabic, a language foreign to her, but whose strictures allowed her to enter a space where she was alone in the presence of God. Alhamdulillah Rabbil al Words as a means for invocation. She repeated the same gesture several times, and when she was done, she folded her prayer rug and put it away. Mirza had finished his work in the kitchen and walked back to his shack with his kerosene lamp, the sound of the gravel beneath his feet. Marsh frogs rhythmically croaked and chirped their mating calls along the streams. Eagle owls hooted in the trees before taking off on their silent hunt. Mirza sat down on his carpet, the glow of the kerosene lamp enlivening the room. He flipped back the edge of the carpet and took out a photograph hidden beneath it. It was of a smiling woman and a small boy no more than ten years of age, his wife and son. The two were killed in a market square bombing one sunny afternoon during the family's shopping excursion in his Afghan hometown. He had just called out to his wife to come smell the cherries he had purchased for her to make jam with when a car rammed into the kiosk where she was standing with their son and exploded. Stunned into silence, a piece of shrapnel lodged just under his left eye, he began to walk with only the bag of cherries in his hand until he reached home. There he collected a small satchel and kept walking until he crossed the border, resting in the byroads and on highways along the route. By the time he reached the town square in Neshapur, the cherries had rotted and the shrapnel had formed a bluish cataract in his left eye. Before, he had been a Farsiwan medical doctor from Herat who went by his given name, Muhammad Ali Khan. Now, he was Mirza, who cooked and cleaned in the orchard. He had come to his work only by walking through the open door. There, under his tree, sat the judge. He sat next to him. They did not speak for an hour except for the offering of tea. After taking tea, he had turned to the judge and asked if there was work to be done, and he had remained there ever since. He now lay on his carpet staring at the photograph. He leaned it against the lamp and spoke to it in hushed tones about his day. He told his son how perfect the Tadig had turned out and the scolding Ja'far had gotten for stealing the midwife's portion. He told his wife about the mullah and the wine and how ashamed he was to have been caught with it on his breath. Lowering his voice, he whispered to her about Nasrin and Majid's tryst among the trees and how it made him ache for her, as he always ached for her. After he was done, he kissed them both goodnight and put them back under the carpet. He blew out his lamp and lay down to sleep. In the moonlight, the judge sat under his tree. Bibi Hanum sat with her back to him. She pulled down her chador and handed him her hairbrush. He began to brush her hair, sometimes sweeping it off her neck and caressing her skin there, which still made her quiver. You did so much today, he said. You must be exhausted. I'm fine. Mirza bears the brunt of the work. My brother embarrassed him about the wine. We call it medicinal juice. The judge laughed. That's what you call the alcohol? Bibi Hanum giggled and asked God for forgiveness by blurting out an Astaghfirullah before saying yes. She leaned into him and he put his arms around her. And as she sank into his embrace, you could not tell where one began and the other ended. Their laughter had died down, and they sat together in this stillness in silence. They sat together in each other's presence in solitude. Sometimes passion is so quiet, you have to close your eyes to hear it. So the next um, short excerpt I'd like to read for you is from a section of the book that takes place at the Festival of Arts in Shiraz. This was a festival that ran from, it was an annual festival that ran from 1967 till 1978. And it was an international arts festival, so lots of musicians, actors, dancers, filmmakers. They all converged on Shiraz and Persepolis for performances and such. In this little excerpt, um, Majid and Nasrin, the young lovers, are sort of cut loose at this festival. And it's the last year. They don't know this, but this is the last year of the festival. <laughs> To be cut loose in the heart of a city in the throes of a celebration was almost overwhelming to the two young lovers. Without a word, they ran together down the street as though they were physically testing the boundaries of their new freedom. As the crowd swelled, Majid slowed his pace and took Nasrin's hand. They walked side by side. The sounds of actors and singers wove through the murmur of conversation, the calling of vendors. They sat together on a crate inside the fruit warehouse, watching the barefoot American troupe create a magical world of rabbits and mushrooms and disappearing cats. Drinks that made Alice shrink and cakes that made her grow. Alice was dressed in nothing more than patchwork rags, and yet she was fussy, spoiled, lost, the real Alice. They were mesmerized. Was it the play alone, or their being together in public? Perhaps both. They held hands for every minute of the show. <laughs> After the curtain call, they erupted into applause, clapping until their hands stung, Majid blowing whistles between claps. It was a cool night, and the scent of coals and kabob wafted through the air on the street. They sat at a plastic table outside a shack and ordered a platter to share, then washed it down with Coca-Cola's. Nasrin was still electrified by the play they had seen. Have you ever seen such a thing, she said. They were all so good. It was just so... Oh, Majid, wasn't it magic? Didn't you see the place? The animals really see it? I did. I really did. They did it with nothing more than their bodies and voices. Pure magic. I liked how they stepped into each role, then stepped out. Yes, and how they didn't use lighting tricks or costumes to transform themselves. This is what I long to do, Majid. Majid watched her face so full of passion, he thought of the train ride and the way in which she was able to sing a song, tell a story, or act out a scene, moving effortlessly from one character to the next with her whole body and voice. You will do it. You already do. They finished their meal and headed back onto the main street, walking slowly now with Majid's arm around her shoulder. Nobody paid them any mind. Nobody cared that an unmarried couple so brazenly walked the streets, their bodies touching. It was nearing midnight when they arrived, and they made their way to the Hafeziah to listen to Persian music. The Hafeziah was the tomb of the poet Hafez and was surrounded by an open-air marble pavilion and lawns. A makeshift stage was set up in front of the tomb for a performance by four musicians, a sitar player, a dombak player, a kamanche player, and a singer who played the daft drum. People were scattered on the grass, quietly conversing and hushed as soon as the music began. Majid lay on his side, resting his head on his hand, looking up at the moon. There is a full solar eclipse coming next month, he said. The moon will completely block out the sun. Nasrin brought her face over Majid's, blocking his view of the sky, and said, like this? They laughed, then held still for a moment to mark the anticipation before a kiss. The music went on and on. People came and left. Shopkeepers pulled in their wares. Porters folded chairs and swept the stairs. Actors, directors, dancers, and singers dressed for a night out gathered at restaurants and bars. Hotel lobbies hummed with guests. Street sweepers collected garbage, and street performers strapped their props to their backs. The show, at last, was over for the night. And just beyond, just out of sight of the new stands and hospitality kiosks, the makeshift stages, the concession stands, the restaurants, bars, and nightclubs, the journalists, paparazzi, press conferences, scholars, intellectuals, theater troupes, musicians, dancers, filmmakers, tourists. Beyond the floodlights and the streetlights, in the vast darkness that spread across the plains, stood a nation on the brink of revolution. That's it. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, anyone have questions? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, it's it's really, it's a combination of all of that. Um, some of these characters are based very, very loosely on people that I've known. Um, some of these characters were inspired by just one particular thing that I heard. Um, you know, and some of these because there's, there's a lot of stories within the story. It has like a frame narrative. Some of these stories I was told you know, over a lifetime by my father and, you know, by family and, and so on and so forth. But the trip to Iran, I think what the significance of it was, was, um, you know, I left when I was eight years old, um, right before the revolution. So when I went back in 2002 as an adult, it was, um, it was quite an experience. Um, I didn't recognize anything. Um, I hardly, I didn't recognize people that I knew as a child. Um, And it was this moment, I think, I mean, if there's like a seed that was planted, it was this moment where I went to my father's hometown in Neshapur. and I, as a child, I spent all of my summers and my holidays on on my grandmother's orchard and it had an indelible effect on me. It's what I remembered. I didn't remember Tehran. I remembered that orchard though. So when I went back to Neshapur, my cousin, who I used to play with as a child, said, do you want to come and see what's left? And I, she, I was like, okay. She's like, I haven't gone, but I'll go if you'll go with me. So we drove to where the orchard used to be. And you know, my grandmother had died not too long after the revolution, and it had been sold off piece by piece. And the only thing that was left was a piece of the wall. And we both just sort of stood in front of it, and I touched it and it fell into dust and i came back i wrote a screenplay about a family on an orchard in nashapur and and then i slowly turned it into a novel because you know if you work i'm sh- this is los angeles if you work in film you know it's it's an expensive thing to do it requires an immense amount of capital and people and I, I wanted to do the work. I wanted the freedom to t- just do the work. So I started to turn it into a novel. And when I was done, and it took years to kind of get it right, when I was done, I was I understood why I wrote it, and I remember that moment of that wall turning into dust. Because, and I oh, and I say this to people a lot. I said because it was I was able to articulate that. The only thing that remains of us are the stories we tell. Um, everything goes away. People, places. And, and I think that was, you know, uh, because I wasn't a writer. You know, I, when I went, I was making a documentary about Tazia. Um, I was working in film. So it wasn't, um, I wasn't, I didn't consider myself a writer until that trip. So that's how it happened. <laughs> Anyone? No, that's it. Yes, and mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Oh there is. Yeah, yeah, so written material or or anything, I, I guess, Yeah. And then, 20, the, the water, or based on what Um the the Festival of Arts I actually did go to. I was, but I was very, very, I went three times, but I was a child. And, you know, they would come, there was, someone would come with a rope and take us away. Like, we, you know, like the kids would all hold on to the rope and go, and we'd be like, you know, in Persepolis, of all places we'd be like. Um, so some of it is, is, very little of it is based on memory. Um, but one of the things that I had um, for my research was I had the um, books because every year the festival had like, a, like a, a brochure that they made and it was in both Persian and English and I think even French so I had those so the Alice in Wonderland was actually I think it was Andre, Andre Gregory and his troupe of actors from New York came and this is exactly how it was yeah thank you thank you very much thank you Anyone? Does anyone need to validate their parking? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Do you validate parking? It's like, no questions? Did? No. <laughs> no? That's it? No? Oh, go ahead. Ah, the title actually comes from, I was doing research on... Um, Char Shambasuri. And in my reading, one of the descriptions of it was that the fire is lit as the sun goes down and it's kept lit until the sun returns to keep the sun alive. And I really loved that title. And not just because of that, but also because I think of it, uh, because the book, in the end, it's not really about the revolution. It's It's really more like a, it's, it was the whole time I was thinking about um, storytelling, you know, how storytelling is sort of the thing that keeps us sane, (laughs) somewhat, keeps us anchored in the world. And so it has that connotation as well, Um, you know, to, to sort of, that's how you keep the world, you know, illuminated is by constantly telling stories. Thank you. Huh? <laughs> yes. There I do use Tazia in the book. I use um I use because I have Ashura in the book and I use one of the Tazias, the Tazia of um Asam uh, which is the which is a marriage. You know, it's one of the stories in the after the 72 Stories. One of them is the, is a marriage that takes place right before the war, and I, I actually use that Tazia. Your is story. No, the documentary I made because my father was directing Tazias that were coming to Lincoln Center. This was in two thousand two, and so I I went back to Iran to shoot Tazia during Ashura in Iran and then in New York, I filmed the troupe and my father in the rehearsal process and putting up this um, Tazia's. They actually pitched a massive tent in Damrush Park in Lincoln Center and a circus came from North Carolina with horses and camels and it was a massive production. And it was really interesting because like, the horsemen were Kazakhs. I mean, they, they didn't speak English or Persian, they spoke Russian. And then the Iranians, who the, the best horseback riders were from Isfahan, and none of them spoke English or Russian, but somehow horse is a language. <laughs> so, so all the horsemen were kind of like, okay, and like they all worked together and it, it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah it was a wonderful. It was a wonderful experience to see it yeah <laughs> it's called the troop <laughs> yeah no it was really you know one of the things I was thinking about on my way here um, was uh, was an interview that I had that I did with one of the troop members he was an old man who played dohol, like a drum and he was like in his late 70s And the first question I asked him was, where are you from? Like in the interview. And he said, I'm from Katayunche Bolchar. But during the Shah's time, they fixed our village after a flood and renamed it Shahabad. And then when those people came, (laughs) they renamed it Islamabad. (laughs) But we call it Katayunche (laughs) Bolchar. And I always think of this as like, this is a really great metaphor, like, it, it, like, for telling a story, it's like you bypass a lot of politics when you go past all of that and go into a culture. Um, you know, it makes for, I think, for better storytelling. So that was, Yes. Mm. well I think you know I spent a lot of time around theater Um, I spent a lot of time you know my family is pretty close-knit and I also did a lot of work on this there were in the early stages it was much more two-dimensional and I spent a lot of time really working through these characters but I think you know we have, like, I think we kind of know in our bones our own people always. You know, it's a question of like pushing away your own prejudices um, and looking at people with, um, with, with grace, um, with, with care, I think. And, and that's kind of what I tried to do. So even the cleric that's in the novel, which is one of the main characters, at first I wrote him almost like a buffoon and it didn't work, it was, it was wrong. And so I went back and I kept working until he was a three-dimensional human being, you know. And, and so I think some of it has, to, it has to do with culture, but I think some of it also has to do with storytelling and with the work that you do as a writer um, and trying to get to the humanity of even the most wretched human being because otherwise it's propaganda. where do I begin? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the bones, I mean, the bones were there. Um, I wrote it, and it was very fragmented. So I had to, and, you know, I was very, very lucky because I have a really amazing agent, and then who worked with me for over two years before it was up to snuff to go out to... Um, publishers and then after that I was lucky to get a really excellent editor at a publishing house who worked with me for we worked for almost a year and we did an overhaul you know we did like a lot of line edits and fixing things and all that but really what's difficult when you take because like the structure is the structure of a film it still is it, I, it really is the structure of a film but it's a novel so you have to fill it in, in in it has to have uh, the the it has to be slee- seamless in its transitions in language, you know. In in cinema, you do it with image, and in the book, you do it with words. And so there was a lot of fragmentation that I had to then kind of put together, you know, sew together and stuff. And at one point, I did dismantle the whole thing and put it back together. Yeah, no, it was not fun at some <laughs> points. <laughs> People were like, what are you doing with your life? I'm like, I swear to God, it's not bad, I swear. So, yeah, thank you. Is it hard to keep track of all the names? Of the characters? Well, no, you become familiar with them. You know who they are. You know, once you know, like, who they are, you always, yeah. (laughs) Hmm? Well, I mean, it's not 100 years of solitude, which has like, I mean, no that's hard. I, don't, I think he probably lost track, too. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. So, anyone? Yes? No? Just keep up. Oh, okay. So <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> um, New York City, baby. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this? Um, yeah, I mean, we're talking to film agents. And, I mean, I, I think it, it could be a film. Sure, it was a film. You know, it's really funny. The reference I have is that um, Cormac McCarthy originally wrote No Country for Old Men as a screenplay, and then turned it into a novel, and then the Coen Brothers came and turned it into a screenplay. <laughs> so it kind of went boom, boom, boom. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think it could be a film. Sure but that's another life first it's a book <laughs> hmm? yeah. I am I'm I'm working on a novel um about New York City um baby yeah um because I've I've lived in New York since I was 10 years old and so I've been there for 30 seven years um and I know that city like the back of my hand I really do and and I want to tell a story about it um yeah so that's the next book and you know in in place is really I think important at least for me as a writer it's really important architecture like there's a lot of parts in this book I write about food and the way that people live what they wear How they, like, you know, the the spaces you occupy, the food you eat, these are, what you wear are really huge components of who you are. Um, So New York also has that richness of architecture and clothes and and everything, and food, and so it's going to, that's the fun part for me. (laughs) I'm like, ooh, (laughs) like, that's the the really fun part. So, yes, anyone? No? Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.